invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in a section of 1 Peter where he is working out the implications of the gospel for marriage. Our vision, our passion here at Bethel is what we call gospel for growth, and that means we want to work out the implications of the gospel for every area of life, including uh, here in this section of 1 Peter, marriage. Last week we saw that the gospel makes Christian wives fearless in their calling to submit to their husbands. Fearless in the sense that they have a joy inexpressible and filled with glory in Christ. And they have a hope that nothing and no one can take from them. And so Christian wives are not kept in submission. They're not intimidated in any way. They are free in Christ to submit themselves uh, to serve their husbands in marriage. What about husbands? Today we are going to look at uh, Peter's instructions to husbands. We're going to look at just one verse. Last week we looked at the fearlessness of submissive wives, and today we want to look at the knowledge of leading husbands. What knowledge do men need in order to fulfill their role in marriage? We're going to see that uh, Peter speaks very briefly, and yet what he says is filled with meaning. So this is 1 Peter 3, just one verse, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless our marriages and our understanding of marriage today. We pray that you would minister the gospel to husbands and wives and to all of us here, that we may have grace to live out your beautiful design for marriage. It's not easy for sinners like us. We know the struggles and the failures, but we are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And so we ask for that grace in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you may have noticed that sometimes having the right knowledge makes uh, all the difference. In every field of human endeavor, in every area of life, sometimes you have these aha moments where you gain some key insight, and that insight really makes all the difference. It makes you wise in that area. Now, some of these insights are very mundane. In the grand scheme of things, really not that significant. For instance, like in construction, I remember discovering that a two by four is not actually two inches by four inches. And it turns out when you're doing home remodeling, that's really important for you to discover that in order for things to fit together correctly. They're actually more like one and a half inches by three and a half inches. That's important to know. Uh, some insights are very mundane. Others are, are more meaningful. New parents discover the cries of their children, that not all their cries are cries of pain. Parents soon learn to discern the cry for hunger, the cry for sleep, the cry uh, when they're just simply bored or frustrated with something. And they learn very quickly to discern which are cries of pain, and it, immediately it triggers them, oh, I know that cry, I better go check out what's happening with our child. Uh, it, learning to discern that, that not all cries are the same, is uh, it, just an important to parenting. And some insights are of uh, the utmost importance. Do you remember the moment you discovered that the Bible is not a collection of truths and morals to live by, but the Bible is actually about a person? Christ, a real flesh and blood redeemer who has come, and the whole purpose of scripture is that we would come to Christ to have life. How that changes the way that we do our daily devotions. 
there are various insights, and today we want to consider what uh, those insights make us wise. What insights do husbands need for the role that God has called them to fulfill as leaders in the marriage? And the key knowledge, the key insight that Peter says that husbands need is to know that wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Now, first of all, husbands need to know that they themselves personally are heirs of the grace of life. What a difference that makes to husbands on a personal level. It enables them to lead their wives well. But secondly, they need to know that their wives are equally with them, heirs of the grace of life. And therefore, even though wives are called to submit and husbands to lead, they have different roles, they enter into the marriage as equals. Husband and wife are equals in the sight of God. And because they are equal in the sight of God, both receive an equally abundant share of the grace of life. They are alike heirs of all of God's promises. And that means that husbands, as they lead, are to treat their wives and honor them as equals. And today, as we work out the implications of the gospel, we're going to do sort of like we did last week as we uh, looked at the wives and their calling. We're going to look at the principle, the power, and the practice of godly leadership. And just like with submission that we talked about last week, we have our suspicions in our culture about the whole idea of headship or the leadership of the husband in marriage. And a lot of these, we have to admit, are based on abuses, both within the Christian community and outside of it, of this whole principle that is taught in Scripture. Now, like last week, the, the leadership of the husband in marriage sometimes conjures that image of a husband... You know, sitting on the couch watching the game with his feet up while his wife does all the work and demanding another beer and, and insisting that his wife uh, serve him. That is not the biblical picture. Although sadly, too often that reputation or that image has been earned even uh, from Christians. While condemning the abuse and the selfishness of how husbands have sometimes used their position as leaders in the marriage, we need to discover God's design. As you may know, there's an opposite extreme that we sometimes encounter in our culture. And when the pendulum swings to the opposite extreme, husbands seem to check out of the, checked out of the marriage and out of family life. They seem to abdicate their role in the, uh, in the family altogether and leave their wife both to lead in the home and also to do all the work. And that equally is a selfish motive. We know the abuses, we know that they're real and they're wrong, but what is God's design for marriage. That's what we want to look at uh, this morning, and what grace does God give husbands for this role that he has called them to do? Something that all of us need to know, uh, whatever your condition this morning, if you are a single and somebody that God has called into lifelong singleship, you may have friends. You have many friends that are married, and in order to offer wise counsel, you need to know God's design for marriage. It's part of being a part of the fellowship of believers. If you're young here and you're single and you're contemplating marriage, maybe you have a desire to be married one day, you need to know the kind of man that, uh, first of all, if you're a man, that God calls you to be. And if you're a woman, you need to know the kind of man that you are looking for. You need to know what to look for as you think about marriage. And of course, if you are married here today, we need to know both God's design for marriage and the grace that God gives us that makes all the difference uh, as we consider today the, the role of the husband in marriage. So let's talk, first of all, about the principle of headship or the principle of leadership. The idea here, as uh, Peter says it, is uh, pretty simple. Uh, in the same way, 
Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Uh, first of all, husbands are to live with their wives, and it's a little bit easy to read past that. The Bible says that when husbands and wives get married, they become one. The two shall become one, which means they share a common life. They live now with each other. In other words, uh, the alternative to that would be, and I think everyone who has been married for any length of time knows when your marriage begins to feel this way, you begin to feel like you're really living like roommates. You know, you have a, some uh, components of your life, aspects of your life are shared. You know, you, have a, a college, you live in the same place. You have bills that you share and are responsible for. You have children uh, that you care for uh, together. But for all that, you know when it begins to feel like husband and wife are really living two separate lives, living in the same home. And each of them uh, has, you know, maybe a different agenda, different dreams, different goals, different ambitions in life. And you have really begun to drift apart. If you think, uh, those of you that are visual and math-minded, if you think of in terms of a Venn diagram, you know the two circles that overlap. The overlap between a husband and wife is not supposed to be limited to shared bills, a shared house, and you know, shared children. The two circles are to completely merge together so that there is one in the same circle. Husband and wife are living the same uh, life. They are sharing a life. They are living with one another. And that means that they, uh, through their relationship, they share, each of them brings their different strengths and resources and gifts into the marriage, and, but they share, they pursue a common vision and agenda in life. They share one life together. That is God's design. Now, husbands and wives are to live together. And what Peter is saying here is this is especially the husband's responsibility to make sure that he is living with his wife and that the marriage is not descended into two sort of roommates living under the same roof. The husband is responsible to make sure that the husband and wife are living together and sharing a life. And for that very purpose, he says, uh, what does it say in verse 7? Uh, it, your, most translations are going to say, uh, your, uh, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now that translation makes it seem like Peter has in mind an attitude. And maybe it's, you know, it's not entirely inappropriate. You know, the husband needs to be sensitive. The husband needs to be uh, emotionally in tune with his wife. Uh, he needs to be caring and kind in the way that he leads. Now, those things may be true, but Peter is seeking, uh, thinking when he uses that word, uh, the, use, the word he uses is more definite. Uh, it were, uh, knowledge is what he has in mind, not uh, just understanding in the terms of an attitude. There are things that a husband definitely knows and must know in order to lead his wife well. And that is what he is talking about. The King James Version is probably the best translation where it says, Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. It's probably a better translation to communicate Peter's intention. What knowledge? Everything that is beneficial for a husband to know for the purpose of the marriage. He needs to know, first, God's design for marriage from Scripture and the grace that God gives us in Christ to pursue that design. A husband needs to know about the Lord, about the Lord's design for marriage and the grace he gives to enable uh, husband and wife to pursue it. But he also needs to know his wife. He needs to know very definite things about his wife, his wife's desires, goals, frustrations, her strengths and her weaknesses, the gifts that she might use and how she might deploy them in uh, service in various ways in her life. A husband needs to know positive knowledge about how his wife is doing emotionally, spiritually, physically, in the marriage. 
Peter goes on to say, uh, give two reasons why husbands must live with their wives according to knowledge. And the first, as he says, is uh, he uh, is living with someone who is weaker since she is a woman. Now, this is one of those verses in Scripture that we come across that has great potential to cause offense when it is misunderstood and twisted out of context and taken in a different direction than Peter intends. Is Peter saying that the female gender is weaker, lesser, that the female gender, you know, less confident, less intelligent, less, less capable, and therefore they need the male gender as a male in their life to lead them? No. Let us say very clearly that is not what uh, Peter is saying here. John Piper, uh, in his book that I referred to last week, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, has just a great image to uh, sort of illustrate this point, uh, God's design for men and women as he brings them together in marriage. He says, uh, make a list, get a piece of paper out and make it into two columns, and on that list all the strengths and the weaknesses of the male gender. And then do the same thing on a separate piece of paper for the wife, for the female gender. Then take those two things, those two lists, and overlay them one on top of the other. And several things will become clear to you if you have done uh, the exercise accurately. One is that the lists are roughly the same length. In other words, the male gender and the female gender have roughly the same length, the same number of weaknesses and strengths. So that, uh, proof positive, you cannot say in any sort of general summary fashion that the female gender is weaker or lesser than the male gender. They have the same, uh, the, the, the list will be the same length. But secondly, what you will notice is that while they are equal in that sense, they are not the same. The fe you know, men and women are not exactly the same. Females have different strengths and different weaknesses than men do. Uh, so the list, will, the list will be roughly the same length, but the, the list won't be the same. Uh, women are stronger in some areas than men are, and men are stronger in other areas, and uh, so on and so forth. They are equal, but they are different. And the third thing that you'll begin to see is God's intention for marriage. That as God brings a man and a woman together in marriage, his intention is that for, for them to use their relative strengths and weaknesses for the good of the other. And many people who have gotten married, uh, many of us uh, as men can say that our wives have made us better men. And many wives can say our husbands have made us better women made us stronger. That's God's design. They're supposed to complement one another, use their relative strengths and weaknesses in service to one another. But the main point that I want to illustrate through that, uh, through that illustration is just that women are not weaker in general. That is not Peter's point. But the question remains, what is Peter saying? It's important to say as well that Peter is not suggesting that women are biologically weaker. I, I came across a, uh, an article just on the internet, uh, Psychology Today, that showed that for every biological weakness that men have over women, more so than women, women have a biological weakness more so than men. And for every biological strength that a woman has more so than a man, a man has a biological strength more so than a woman. There are differences. One, uh, just to illustrate with one point, uh, the author of the article pointed to the fact that women in general seem to have superior immune systems. And somewhat whimsically, he pointed out that there is really then a thing called man flu, where men, you know, wives, next time your husband uh, you know, has the flu and is being a crybaby, you can be sympathetic. Uh, apparently, uh, the author would suggest, they biologically, they have a weaker immune system, the flu hits them harder than it hits you. 
All right, so we're not saying in a general sense that you, know, you can make a biological statement about the, you know, the female gender is weaker. That is not uh, the case. So what is Peter saying? What he is saying, first of all, is just the simple uh, reality that men are physically, in terms of brute physical strength, are stronger. They have a greater upper body strength, they have more testosterone, uh, they have more greater muscle mass, they tend to be larger. And therefore, what Peter is getting at is that men, in their role as leaders, find it easy to, uh, more easy, I, I suppose, than women, to intimidate their wives. And he is saying, you must not do that in your marriages. Although you may be bigger and stronger, you must not use that as an advantage to intimidate your wife into submission. That is an abuse. You must have knowledge that although she is weaker, you must not use that to your, uh, your greater physical strength to your own advantage. And that seems to be at least partly in Peter's mind because down in verse 14 he says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So intimidation seems to be a factor. And Peter is saying, husbands, you must not use your superior physical strength to uh, keep your wife in submission or to intimidate her to get your way. But there's another sense uh, in which women may be uh, said to be in a weaker, and that is in a weaker position. Women are called to submit, and we have to acknowledge that that leaves them in a vulnerable position relative to the man's leadership. Men are to lead their wives in such a way not as to take advantage of that selfishly for themselves, but they are to use their calling to lead the marriage to serve their wives. Last week, we, uh, we saw that both men and uh, both uh, husbands and wives are called to submit. All of God's people are called to submit. And wives are to submit by accepting and yielding to the authority of their husbands. And husbands are to submit by using their authority to serve their wives. That is why they must know them. They must know all about their wives and how best uh, to serve them. So first of all, that's the principle. Uh, husbands are uh, to uh, live with their wives according to knowledge. They are to know their wives, not use their superior physical strength, that narrow advantage that men have to intimidate their wives in their relationship. Uh, the second reason that Peter gives is that women are heirs to the grace of life, and this is where we want to begin to look at the power for godly leadership. The power for godly leadership comes when men not only know that their wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life, and therefore equal and must be honored as equals, but when men themselves come to know themselves on a personal level, I too am an heir of the grace of life. It's easy to miss that when he says they're fellow heirs. Men, too, need the gospel to be ministered to their heart. They need Christ uh, to, to be ministered to their hearts, to know that they are, a, uh, they are heirs of the grace of life. Last week we said that wives, uh, the power for submission is hope, the living hope that God has given us. Christian wives have glorious hope. They are, uh, have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for them that uh, that nothing can be, uh, you know, spoil or take away from them. They themselves are personally kept by the great power of God. Christ himself, in the previous verses, is their shepherd and guardian. And therefore, Christian wives are strong. They are fearless. And therefore, rather than being uh, kept in submission, they are free to submit to serve their husbands freely in the role that God has called them uh, to fill. But men also need a similar ministry of the gospel to their hearts to transform and to shape the way that they practice leadership. Uh, and you, know, you can think of two ways that men tend to abuse leadership, as I hinted at earlier. One, it, you know, some of us tend, in general, 
uh, to be more domineering. You may find it easy sometimes to steamroll your wife. Other of us, of us just in, maybe in our personality or disposition, tend to be more timid, and we cave more easily, and we, we tend to abdicate all leadership altogether. And the gospel ministers to both of those abuses that men are prone uh, to. First of all, let's talk about the temptation towards a domineering uh, you know, sort of a approach in relationship with your wife, uh, those that struggle in that direction. And by the way, sometimes some of us are timid in some areas and domineering in others just sort of depends on the day and the particular instance. I mean, we know the struggles can change. It's not like you're one or the other. But in the relation to this struggle, to this abuse, either to dominate here or to totally uh, abdicate all responsibility to lead in this other realm. Uh, first of all, you know, that, that uh, dynamic, whether it's general for you or whether it's in particular moments, to domineer. It's something that I didn't realize or fully appreciate until I was older, but I'm sure you have observed that bullies are really fundamentally weak. Uh, the reason that people bully is because they are profoundly insecure. You, I'm sure you've noticed the same thing about those who tend to be very arrogant and proud. They're making up for, they're compensating for profound insecurity and inward weakness that they feel in their hearts. And when we feel that way, men sometimes uh, want to insist their wives be in submission to them, and they're really desperate for respect, and they insist that their wives give them respect, both in the home and outside in the community. Men need the gospel to minister to that inward, uh, true weakness that is in their hearts that makes them clamor and makes them desperate for respect. When they realize that they are justified before the presence of the Lord and that they are loved, that the King of glory himself has looked upon them and, and paid them the honor, if you will, of salvation. Through justification, they become inwardly strong. And then they don't need to demand respect and, and, and demand that their wives submit on every issue. They're free. They have the respect from the Lord that they have been seeking from their wives falsely. So the justification, that respect, that honor that we have in the presence of the Lord, if you are an heir of life and you know that, sets you free. Others of us uh, tend to be, uh, you know, very timid, and that's where wives sometimes feel as though their husbands are sort of checked out of the marriage and out of family life. We need to acknowledge that that is just as selfish as those, or it can be just as selfish as those who are domineering. Uh, we can be passive. We really leave our wives holding the bag, leaving our wives to do, make all the decisions, do all the leading in the home, and do everything. We're not really serving the way that God has called us to serve either when we are struggling with being timid and being passive in the relationship. What we need to uh, understand is that Christ was not passive in his relationship with us, and we need to learn from Christ. Christ was not passive in the way that he served us, but he came and he laid down his life for us, and that is what men need in order to be filled with the strength to be able to go and do likewise, to go and to actually lay down their lives for their, for their wives, just as Christ did for them. But they'll never have an inward strength to lay down their wives and, uh, and use their authority and lead actively, but in service. You know, sometimes men are timid because they think that if they do take the lead, the only way they know to take lead is to become sort of abusive and oppressive and domineering. But the other choice of just being passive is uh, not really serving, it's just as selfish. Wives oftentimes want men to be active in the home, to take a lead, to step up. But not in a, a selfish or domineering way, but in a way that truly serves the family and serves the marriage. And that is what men are called to do, and they need to know that Christ has done that for them. 
And as they see that Christ has laid down his life for them, they become active in service and they lay down their life for their bride as well. The grace that men need to know is, is that they, they are uh, heirs of the grace of life. And that is because, as we see in 2.24, Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. When Peter says, first to wives and then to husbands likewise, or in the same way, he's pointing back to Christ. Wives, in their role as submission, are to be like Christ who came, the, the king of glory who came as the suffering servant, and they are, just as Christ submitted himself to his father's will when it was father's will to save us, wives submit to the will of their husbands in a similar manner, serving their husbands as Christ has served them in the matter of their salvation. And in the same way, husbands, just as Christ submitted himself to be a servant, husbands are to submit themselves, even in their role as leaders, to serve their wives. And they are to be active in the way that they do it. Now, there's one thing I want to comment about, uh, upon. He says, uh, towards the end of verse 7, lest your prayers be hindered, or so that your prayers will not be hindered. And I want to be clear about what that does mean and what that does not mean for your own spiritual good this morning. What it does mean is that if you are proud, you're oppressive towards your wife, you feel justified in that attitude because of you know, whatever excuses you want to give, and you are totally unrepentant and you are domineering and sort of oppressive in your marriage relationship, your spiritual vitality and your walk with the Lord will be hindered. Because we, uh, you know, our spiritual vitality depends upon our prayers and our relationship with the Lord. As he uh, says, uh, goes on to show later in quoting that psalm, in verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want to be clear about what that means, because if you are living comfortably in sin, abusing your leadership selfishly and turning it to your own advantage, then the Lord will be against you, because you are unrepentant. But I want you to know also that what it, what it does mean, what it does not mean is that God turns a deaf ear to you when you struggle with sin. It's very important if you uh, hear God's you know, uh, counsel that you are to serve your wife in the way that you lead in the home and you see that you have been overly timid or you've been overly domineering. You haven't been leading at all or you haven't been leading well and you're broken hearted in that knowledge, then I urge you, you must come before the Lord with confidence that he will hear you where else will you get the forgiveness that you need but from the Lord? Where, who else can change your heart? And uh, where else can you find it? You must come to the Lord with confidence that the Lord hears our prayers. The Lord is opposed to the proud who refuse, who live comfortably in sin and refuse to acknowledge it and don't think it's a problem and justify all their sinful behavior. But those who are broken in the knowledge of their sin, in any way the brokenness touches your heart and your life, you may come to the, to the Lord and know that he will hear you. When the Lord does forgive you and begin to change you inwardly as a husband, giving you the strength that comes from knowing that you are justified in the Lord, that inward strength, what does your practice of leadership look like? We uh, obviously don't lead, uh, and, and as we have been saying, that we don't lead and use our authority uh, selfishly, but we use our authority to serve uh, our wives. And what that means in practice uh, for your role as a husband is you need to know certain things, as we said earlier. You need to, first of all, study God's design for marriage and God's design for your role. What is your role? What is God calling you to do 
in your marriage. You need to be intimately equated with what God says about that. And not only that, but you need to be intimately equated with, with the grace that God gives us in Jesus Christ. All of those principles and all those morals and all that good instruction will fall on deaf ears if you are not coming to Christ to have life. So you need, through God's word, you need to know God's word. It's interesting, this word for knowledge, uh, husbands dwell to wives according to knowledge, the most common reference for that knowledge is the gospel. And so it's almost tantamount to saying, uh, husbands, live with your wives according to the gospel. Understand the implications of the gospel for your role as a husband, and husbands need to study that. But they also need to know their wives. And I appreciate the way one uh, commentator put it, that men, uh, husbands need unhurried times of private fellowship with their wives. I love the way that, uh, of putting that. Unhurried times of fellowship. It's sort of getting at date nights. There you go. Times together. <laughs> I, now, I, I'm aware in our culture that uh, some of the, the challenges to having those unhurried times of private fellowship with your wife. I know sometimes, you know, life gets really busy. I know that babysitting can be really expensive. So if you uh, find in your marriage uh, your budget just simply does not allow you to hire a babysitter and actually go out and do something, you might have to be creative. But you need times of unhurried private fellowship if you are going to get to know your wife in order to lead her well. You need to know her desires, her dreams, her frustrations. You need to know how she is actually doing. Is she happy? Is she sad? Spiritually, emotionally, physically, you, in order to care for her, to lead her well, you need to know your wife, and you need those unhurried times of personal fellowship. You may need to put the kids down, uh, you know, and, and have a late dinner and make it a special time together. You're not going to get on the electronics and go your separate ways, but you're, you're going to have time together. You may have to be creative if your budget doesn't allow you to, you know, to go out on a date night. But you need to have those unhurried times of private fellowship uh, in order for you to lead well, and you cannot lead well if you do not know your wife. And to know your wife, you need those unhurried times. Now, you may be saying to yourself, listen, <laughs> when, you don't know, like, the way things have gotten, you know, the place we've come to in our marriage, first of all, we've drifted quite far apart. So when we get together, I don't even know what we would say at this point. Marriages sometimes come to that. And sometimes you are only too aware of what those unhurried times of private fellowship are going to lead to. Yelling and anger, there are issues that have built up through the years that have not really been ever dealt with. And so when you do have times together, you, it's painful. You end up angry, maybe yelling at one another. What do you do in that case? Well, may I suggest that you still have those unhurried times of private fellowship, but what, what needs to happen is that for a season, not forever, but for a season, you may be, uh, need to be very structured and formal in your use of that time. And this is something that uh, Lee and I, has blessed Lee and I's marriage, but we have had times, uh, especially towards the beginning of our marriage, where we sat down, we had regularly scheduled times, uh, once a week, once every other week, where we sat down, unhurried time of private fellowship, and we simply asked the question, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? And we've also learned uh, by practice that uh, there's certain ground rules that you have to have established sort of up front in order for it to work well. You don't need to do it exactly this approach. These are just things that uh, I have found useful and, and you may find useful as you seek as a husband to lead your wife well and to really get to know her and how she is doing. It's helpful to have two separate times. First, where uh, the husband speaks and then where the woman speaks, or you can do the wife speaks first and then the husband speaks. But the point is you need two separate times. It's important to lay that groundwork. Have a time where as a husband, this is the point, you need to prepare your heart in advance of that meeting and you need to prepare your heart to say, I am going and I'm going to listen. 
I'm going to simply hear what my wife has to say. I know that some of what she has to say, maybe what she has to say to me is going to be hard for me to hear. I'm not going to switch the tables, you know, turn the tables and say, well, you can go on the attack. I'm not going to justify or excuse my behavior. My goal, you know, while it's my wife's turn to speak, is simply to listen. I want to hear what she has to say. Now, inwardly, you may agree or you may disagree. And sometimes in the moment, it's hard to know which, uh, you know, which it is. It's okay for you to say, you know, at the end of that time, after you listen to your wife, you know, I'm not sure I track exactly with what, what you know, I, I see things exactly the way that you're seeing them. You know, give me some time. That's why it's helpful to have a second time where you can come back, you know, have regular time. But you need to listen. Your goal, you can ask clarifying questions during that time. Do you mean this? Is, this, is it kind of like this? Is that what you're describing? Try, but your goal is to try to understand, not to justify your behavior. Then when it's your turn to speak, you need to be honest, and sometimes that takes courage. And husbands, if you have been intimidating, you need to give your wife space and sort of draw her out and encourage her to open up, to know that you really do want just to listen. But when it's your turn to speak, you need to be honest. It's going to come out messy, and sometimes uh, you're not sure where sin ends and righteousness begins, and it's all a bit messy. Yeah, but you need to be honest. The real you has to come out, and you just need to talk through it. And then you can come to the foot of the cross together, and this is the most important thing that I can tell you. It, everything hinges on this last point. <laughs> everything will be uh, lost if you don't come, as Peter says, with great awareness and ministering it actively throughout to one another that you are fellow heirs of the grace of life. There is forgiveness in Christ. You are freely justified in Christ. It helps the other person not to feel like they're cut down to an inch tall. You are freely justified. We are fellow heirs. And that means you can come together to the foot of the cross. Where there is sin, it's not so much your sin versus my sin, your wrong versus my wrong. We come together against a mutual enemy, which is sin. Neither of us, because our Savior uh, has died for our sins, neither of us love our sin. We want to be rid of it. It allows you to come together as allies against a mutual enemy, which is sin. And it doesn't matter if it's yours or hers, or vice versa. What matters is that uh, we know that, that Christ brings forgiveness and change, and he is with us. Today, uh, for your uh, role as husbands, uh, husbands are called to live with their wives according to knowledge, to know God's design for marriage, to know God's grace that enables you to pursue marriage. And you need to, as husbands, you need to minister that personally to yourself if you are to lead your wife well, and then you need to get, uh, find a way to get to know your wife intimately so you know how she is actually doing and use your leadership to serve her well. As we think about marriage, you know, uh, we come to the table. We come to the table today as husbands, as wives, and as single people, all for the same uh, purpose ultimately. Some of you know that a couple weeks ago I was able to, to spend a week of study leave studying the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that really, impre was, really imp was impressed upon me is the whole reason we have the Lord's Supper. Why not just have the gospel proclaimed? One of the reasons that we come to the bread and the wine is to remind us that we have and we need a real flesh and blood Savior who had a real body and real blood and whose body and blood were separated for us at the cross, there is a real death that has occurred in order that we might be forgiven and in order that we might have hope and that we might change. We take the bread and the wine separately, first the bread and then the wine. You may wonder why. What that is supposed to illustrate to you is Christ's body and his blood, 
were separated for you at the cross, indicating a real and a true death. Death has occurred in order that you might have life and forgiveness and joy and hope. We need that for our marriages. For you need that as if you're a husband here today or if you will be a husband. You need Christ, a real flesh and blood Savior who is with you, who is for you, and who is at work in you. You need a real Savior. And allow the bread and the wine to minister to you for the good of your marriage. There is a real Savior who is with you in your marriage, who can minister to you, forgive you in the midst of your failures, and help change you and, and teach you wisdom so that you lead in a way that really indicates the way that Christ leads us as his people. If you are not a believer here today and you haven't really come to see your, your need for a real flesh and blood Savior, I would invite you to simply allow the bread and the wine to pass you by. Because scriptures warn us that if, if we eat the bread and drink the wine and we don't really trust in Christ or see our need for Christ, we will eat and drink judgment to ourselves. If, uh, this is, if the gospel is a little bit confusing and it's not yet clear, just simply allow the bread and the wine to pass you by today. But I encourage you to think about the gospel and, think, uh, and come and talk to me or to somebody here this morning who can help you get clarity on what Christ means. Elders, would you come forward as we uh, now participate in the Lord's Supper?